Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then... Stripe Tap to Pay on iPhone came along and changed everything. With Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. No more juggling different methods. Just a simple tap on my iPhone and transactions are complete. What's truly remarkable is how Stripe caters to all my customers' preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Stripe ensures a smooth checkout experience every time. Setting up Stripe was a breeze, taking just minutes to get up and running. From local markets to global retailers, Stripe helped me expand my reach and grow my business with ease. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Daily Tech News Show is made possible by its listeners. Thanks to all of you, including Dustin Campbell, Tim Deputy, and Brandon Brooks. Coming up on DTNS, we dig into a busy week of tech earnings. Adobe shows its true colors And will cultured meat ever make financial sense? This is the Daily Tech News for Friday, October 28th, 2022. From lovely Cleveland, Ohio, I'm Rich Straffolino. Drawing the top tech stories from Cleveland as well, I'm Len Peralta. I'm the show's producer, Roger Chang. And joining us from across the seas is Nate Langson, Bloomberg's tech editor and host of the Text Message Podcast. Nate, thanks so much for being on the show. Appreciate you having you here. Oh, it is always a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me back. Sorry it's been such a long time since I've been here. Uh, No apologies necessary. It's truly our privilege. Let's get started, though, with the quick hits. A few tech things you should know. According to an SEC filing, Elon Musk completed his bid to take Twitter private. It's been pretty low-key. You might not have heard of this. The company's stock will be delisted from the New York Stock Exchange on November 8th. As part of the acquisition, Twitter's CEO Parag Agrawal, CFO Ned Siegel, Twitter's chief policy officer, general counsel, and chief customer officer were fired. Musk is expected to share more information on his plan for Twitter with employees. He said on October 28th, we haven't heard anything yet. We will let you know. Musk has also said Friday that Twitter would be forming a content moderation council going forward. Telegram founder Pavel Durov said on his own Telegram channel that Apple claimed it wouldn't allow content creators to use third-party payment methods. This is despite the fact that Telegram allows content creators to offer access to channels or individual posts through a paywall that users can use to pay for with a third-party payment method, bypassing Apple's in-app purchasing system. As a result, Jurov says Telegram must disable paid posts and channels on its iOS app, adding, quote, This is just another example of how a trillion-dollar monopoly abuses its market dominance at the expense of millions of users who are trying to monetize their own content. YouTube began rolling out changes to how video content will appear on channel pages. These will now be split into three different tabs. On one, you have videos. These are just typical, long-form, your standard YouTube video content. There's shorts for your short vertical video and live showing past, current, and upcoming live streams. 
Users watching Shorts videos that navigate to a creator's channel will go directly to the new Shorts tab. You can see the same type of content there. Pour one out. Lego announced that it will discontinue its Mindstorms robotics lineup at the end of 2022. I'm a big fan. Uh, it guaranteed support for Mindstorms mobile apps used to control and program robots until the end of 2024. Lego first debuted Mindstorms in 1998, and I was one of the first people to buy a set. Sad to see it go. Long legacy. And, fi- and, he- and finally, in the quick hits here, Microsoft's corporate vice president of Microsoft's office group, Joe Belfiore, announced his retirement. He worked at Microsoft for 32 years, starting with the Windows 95 team. You probably have seen his picture, at least. He co-led and served as the public face for Windows Phone division from 2009 to 2013. That includes kind of the Nokia acquisition of when Microsoft is really making their big push with Windows Phone. All right. Well, one of the stories that kind of caught my eye uh, this week is kind of about uh, the the world of of meat substitutes or meat analogs. And and just follow along with me here, because when it comes to meat substitutes, we've gone a long way over the past couple of decades. Uh, Plant-based meat substitutes have received big venture funding and right now fairly easy to find at grocery stores, increasingly at national restaurant chains. I I loves me an Impossible Whopper uh, from BK, as it were. But while plant-based offerings from Impossible, Beyond, tons of others have really taken off, lab-grown meat still remains, well, in the lab. Jessica Hamzow at MIT Technology Review published a piece musing if lab-grown meat will ever indeed become a commercially viable product. We've been talking about lab-grown meat for a while. Hamslow points out that the arguments for so-called, quote-unquote, cultured meat are compelling. For example, eliminates cramped conditions for animals, which can, uh, ethical issues notwithstanding, hasten antibiotic-resistant bacteria. It also cuts greenhouse gas emissions inherent in large-scale animal agriculture and would use a lot less land for grazing, watering, the rest. Yeah, and we've been following this kind of space for a while. You may recall back in 2013, Google co-founder Sergey Brin spent $330,000 to fund the creation of a lab-grown hamburger, one hamburger. Costs have come down significantly since then from the tech billionaire-only level, but scaling them to consumer production remains a challenge. A 2021 study in the journal Biotechnology and Bioengineering looking at scaling in industrial fermentation and upstream biopharmaceuticals ultimately found that metabolic efficiency enhancements and the development of low-cost media from plant hydrolysates are both necessary but insufficient conditions for displacement of conventional meat by culture meat. So even basically looking speculatively at technology innovation that isn't there yet, just saying like assuming we advance, uh, you know, kind of the, the state-of-the-art technology now, that doesn't seem to be a foreseeable way to get cost to a consumer level, at least at this point. So the short of it is, even if technically possible, cultured meats would still have to pass regulatory hurdles before going to the market. But there's the bigger question of if consumers would want to eat this meat. Because eating cultured animal muscle fibers is still meat, it probably doesn't have the same appeal to all vegetarians, uh, meaning success would depend on converting meat eaters from eating uh, traditionally uh, raised uh, red meat or meat in general into a lab grown. Now, in 2016, a U.S. survey found that about a third of respondents would be willing to give up farmed meat for cultured, but just as many assumed it would be less tasty, less appealing, and more importantly, more expensive. Yeah, that that seems to be the sticking point. So, I mean, Nate, are uh, you going to be uh, pouring out a test tube of hamburger? Does that sound uh, appealing to you? 
No, not really. Um, <laughs> by pure coincidence, today I had a Beyond Burger for dinner uh, about three hours ago before I even knew we were going to be talking about this. <laughs> and I really like those burgers. They're very, very nice. I'm not a vegetarian. I'm not a vegan. Uh, I have been significantly reducing the amount of meat I eat. Um, part of that is for health reasons. Part of it um, is a bit of an ongoing personal experiment to see how little meat I can eat without actually becoming a vegetarian. Because a lot of the problems I think with with uh, with with meat and certainly with um, industrialized agriculture and farming is that it is possible to do it in a way where animals are very very well looked after. They're fed an organic diet. It's very natural. There's no antibiotic antibiotics things like that. It can be done, but it's quite expensive and it's hard to do at scale. These are the kind of products that are going to come out that essentially are, could potentially take over at scale when the costs come down but that is such a long long way away and i think that the biggest hurdle isn't going to be the regulatory issue because we've seen very dangerous things well not dangerous things but we've, we've certainly things questionable seen, questionable things pass through regulatory barriers the the biggest hurdle other than cost and though and, and regulation is is going to be are people going to want to eat it and over here I mean, genetically modified food, a GM stuff isn't even legal. Like, you, it's it's barely a thing. So, getting past that itself is hard. Growing it in a lab, fresh, long way away. I think. I mean, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to talk over you. No, I'm done. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm one finished. of the. I, like one of the biggest hurdles in, in it's mentioned in this article is, is getting over the perception, which is why I believe the biggest market uh, that uh, cultured meat would go into is processed foods. So in other words, it wouldn't be here's my here's my steak or here's my ribeye or whatever that you get at the butchers. It's going to be in your steakums or your processed breakfast meats or whatever that you get in the freezer aisle or in pre-made food items because – in a way, it's hidden, and if you if you do enough creatively uh, uh, marketing, you can make it seem like, hey, this is real meat. Uh, it's good for the earth, uh, good for you, and it's you know it, it it works out the same. And all you all you're doing is making the uh, the consumer feel better about themselves while selling them a product that's maybe slightly more expensive initially. But you know, eventually, if you get this at scale, uh, as Nate was saying, you could bring the cost down considerably. I do wonder, though, if because uh, in this piece, uh, there was an interview, I believe it was with the Beyond CEO, basically saying that they don't see cultured meat being a competitor to them anywhere in the foreseeable future, just kind of signaling how far at least they see it as. Um, but I, I do th I do see that as like the uh, uh, as the as the natural competition for this. Right. Because there's always going to be that, you know, even if it's industrial, you know, farm-raised meat, you know, whatever you want to call it, you can always have that kind of traditional uh, uh, appeal of that, right? Whereas, you know, Nate, I'm kind of in the same boat as you. I'm not a vegetarian, but I am trying to be conscious of, like, the amount of red meat that I'm eating. And I I, I actually, like, if I'm just going to throw, like, a, a cheap hamburger patty, like, on a grill for, like, summer grilling, I actually prefer, like, an Impossible Burger. I just, I, I think they taste really good. I think they've nailed, I, they've nailed that one specific thing. Uh, some of their other stuff is is hit or miss for me but i i feel like that is more of the uh, of the market here where it's like the uh, conscious consumer for whatever reason whether it's health reasons whether it can be you know we, we can make these lower fat and still you know maintain that taste or something like that i feel like that is the market but the fact that we're hearing that even like 
you know, we've heard like other technologies, like solid state batteries, like we've heard like, oh, those are coming along, even though we're like, we're still inventing the things that can make those industrially possible. That, that uh, biotechnology and bioengineering study made it sound like even if the speculative technology that we're not sure we can make with all of our VC funding is going to get made, we're still a ways off from figuring out how we can scale this. And anyway, now throw enough money at something, you know, you know and there's a market demand sometimes we can make some stuff happen, but there is a, it's, it, this made me more incredulous about when we are going to see this. In 2013, I thought, oh, in a decade, we'll see it. This is the thing. You'll probably see this taken up in areas or regions of the world where land is at a premium and being able to lab grow things in a vertical, in a vertical farm, basically a building, instead Mm -hmm. of having to uh, score out acres and acres of valuable real estate to raise uh, uh, animals, I think would be a much, uh, would be fiscally a lot more uh, attractive to to some, uh, to some entities. Yeah. And a better use of venture capital. So, oh, <laughs> seriously, I've been sitting here for two minutes wanting to say that. <laughs> All right. Well, one of the big complaints with Adobe's Creative Cloud is users can't really own their own apps anymore. And if you've used them, maybe you felt the same way. Instead, really only available through a continual subscription. While some complain about subscription models, it still hasn't stopped these apps from being wildly popular for Adobe. But now users may be on the hook for another subscription to access color in their past projects. Users report that opening projects in Photoshop, Illustrator, and InDesign using colors from Pantone now show the warning, the file has Pantone colors that have been removed and replaced with black due to changes in Pantone's licensing with Adobe. All right, now Pantone has been around since the 1950s, offering industry exacting standards uh, using its Pantone color matches system designed to license colors for exact matches across the manufacturing use cases. Now, Adobe and Pantone have been working together since the 1990s, but Pantone color libraries and Adobe apps haven't been updated since 2010. Pantone says that the two jointly decide, quote, decided to remove the outdated libraries and jointly focused on an improved in-app experience that better serves our users. Yes, filling it in with black better serves our users. There were, of course, warning signs that this was coming. In 2021, Adobe announced it planned to remove Pantone color books from its app, but said it was working on an alternative solution. So, you know, not great to hear, but okay, they're working on alternatives. Adobe kept pushing back the date of removal. It was originally set for March 31st of this year, and then moved back to several dates in August. It seems we have now hit that date in late October. Now, Pantone offers its Pantone Connect extension that can bring colors back to Creative Cloud, but the catch, it costs 90 bucks a year for the premium version. The publication Print Week also notes that you can back up your Pantone libraries, then re-import them when Adobe Software Update removes them. Although if you're already seeing the error message, you're probably SOL. So there is also a non-industry standard color scheme like Open Color. So, I've learned I, so much. <laughs> About the, the, the insidious licensing world of color, Nate? I just didn't think it went this deep, you know, how that it went as deep as the colors within the thing within the thing. I just thought colors were colors. Well, and this this may not, you know, impact a lot of uh, uh, more consumer uh, facing use cases for InDesign and stuff like that. But this is if you've done anything where, okay, I need to send this to print. I need to send this to manufacturing, you know, for the for the very professional use cases of these, you know, these it's easy to say, oh. 
you know, Pantone wants a license for a color, how ridiculous, but if you're a brand and, you know, part of your brand is we have these exact colors that we need to hit, we're a certain shade of green, a certain shade of yellow and a certain shade of blue or whatever, you know, whatever, um, that is extremely important to you. And clearly Adobe was exchanging money with Pantone at some point and they have, they have broken down uh, those discussions and decided, hey, we can pass these on to our, uh, you know, to our, to our commercial users who will, you know, put this into the corporate checkbook and most people won't blink an eye, not realizing that this error message is going to be on Twitter immediately and cause a whole kerfuffle of people being so, upset with blacked out images. So one of the things I've used Adobe Creative Cloud uh, for before is their library of stock images, sounds, and samples. Now, n currently, I think they're all royalty-free, but if there were a thing where they licensed a library, say from Firstcom or BMI or whatever, to do you know uh, background bed music and stuff for, for video creations and stuff, and they fall afoul, and then someone comes around and says, well, no, you can't use that anymore, so any reference to these old libraries that are in your project suddenly just get deleted – I think that I think there would be a lot of angry users because you're working with the assumption that up until this point I get to keep those elements as part of my project and then my final work. Well, and and I, I, Roger, I do think that is it's a separate issue, but I do think that points to the concern that we've that a lot of people have, not just with Adobe being, oh, I got to pay the however much a month, and I'll pretend to cancel every year so I get the cheaper rate, you know, whatever, like the the. the you know, being on the hook for these subscriptions with Adobe, but it also speaks to, it's not just that Adobe is updating these, oh yes, you get the latest features. That's a nice benefit of being a subscription service, right? I never, oh, I, they rolled out this new healing tool and now I get that. That's awesome. That's great that I get that as a benefit of my subscription, but there are more dynamics to this kind of software. And this is a particular one where things can go away that you have no control over. This is a B2B thing, uh, a licensing fight between, you know, it's like the equivalent of a carrier dispute, it feels like, so in a lot of ways, where where I don't I don't have any agency as a user to be like, no, 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 don't break anything. I just want to use the software that I paid for. I didn't pay for the software. I paid for the service to use it. And now Adobe is, or Pantone, you know, it, this is, again, I'm not to point fingers here. For whatever reason, now I have less functionality with my software that I am still paying for every single month. I just, I just, I just don't get it. If I draw a picture, let's say I draw a really lovely cloud and a tree, and I use only Pantone colors, and this license expires and I don't pay more money, does my image just disappear? So in this in in this particular case, your exported image would be fine. Like if you have already saved it and you've saved this artwork, it's not going anywhere because that's like baked in, obviously, not obviously, but that's that's baked in. But if you open that PSD file and you that had your corporate branding, like if you were using those specific colors, you're probably using it intentionally because you want that matching uh, that Pantone offers. Then yes, these would be based on user reports that we're seeing right now. These would be blacked out uh, unless you pay for that extension. For just a mere uh, ninety dollars a year, Nate. That's wow, bargain. that's bargain. I, it's it, part part of it feels unseemly. A part of it feels like this is how the industry works because I've seen similar things with uh, in broadcast when you have uh, music libraries that go missing because no one wants to pay the licensing fee anymore. Um, and I'm wondering, moving forward, is there a better system where it's just like, okay, you pay this and you get – I mean, at some point – It's called nest, buying software, Roger. <laughs> no, at, at some point, nesting licensing and subscriber fees, the whole point of it is to make 
this a very simple process for for creators, and that it sounds like it's getting more complicated than it needs to be. Sure, just just wrap it into the Creative Cloud description. I mean, that's the only simple way to do this. I mean, this just, to me, this just sounds completely ridiculous. It, it does seem weird that they wouldn't just be like, all right, you can pay $2 more and you never see this or, or something, some kind of term like that where they had to have known, Adobe had to have known that this would be a black eye and it's going to come back on them even if it's, again, anytime there's a B2B dispute that bleeds over into consumers, consumers don't care. They're going to blame whoever shows them the message. Uh, that's why I compared it to a carriage dispute. Like we always blame, we always blame the cable provider and, and the network is usually like, okay, it's because my cable provider is giving me the error message. It's telling me, it, it's the one telling me it's broken. I have no relationship with Pantone, right? So that that is always where I feel like these things happen all the time. It's just consumers aren't aware of them. And this is a weird example of it, of it coming over. Wow. I have learned a lot today. I mean, <laughs> tomorrow I'm going to look out the window. I'm going to be a rainbow and there's going to be a black line through the rainbow because someone's <laughs> removed Only the if it's a corporate branded rainbow. Only if it's a uh, corporate branded rainbow. Give it time. Well, if you have a thought about something that you've heard on this show but don't know our email address, here it is. Check it out. Feedback at dailytechnewsshow.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point on the price-performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Haiku is the fastest and lowest-cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to keep them at the frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then Stripe tap to pay on iPhone came along and changed everything. With Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. No more juggling different methods. Just a simple tap on my iPhone and transactions are complete. What's truly remarkable is how Stripe caters to all my customers' preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Stripe ensures a smooth checkout experience every time. Setting up Stripe was a breeze, taking just minutes to get up and running. From local markets to global retailers, Stripe helped me expand my reach and grow my business with ease. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, Visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Well, go ahead, Roger. As expected, it's been a week of tech, uh, been a bit of a week for tech earnings. Earlier this week, Microsoft saw a steep decline in Windows license revenue. Meta reported its second straight quarter of year-on-year revenue decline, and Alphabet saw YouTube and ad revenue drop. Well, now it's Amazon's turn for underwhelming Q3 financials. They earned $0.28 per share on revenue up 15% of the year to $127.10 billion. 
which is by my accounting a lot, but below analyst estimates. AWS generated $20.5 billion in revenue, up 27.5% on the year, but its slowest rate of year-over-year growth since 2014. That's quite a while. The unit's operating income of $5.4 billion accounted for all of Amazon's overall $2.53 billion profit. Its ad business grew 25% on the year to $9.55 billion. Now, in its quarter, uh, Q4 earnings, uh, Apple earned $1.29 per share on a record revenue of $90.15 billion, up 8.1% on the year. Both beat analyst estimates. Revenue was buoyed by strong growth in its Mac business, up 25.39% to $11.51 billion. While iPhone revenue grew 9.67% uh, on the year, it missed analyst estimates with $42.63 billion. Services and iPad revenue also missed analyst estimates with iPad revenue down 13.06% on the year to $7.17 billion. And rounding out the financial news in Intel's Q3, the company earned $0.59 cents per share on revenue of $15.34 billion, down 15% of the year. Now you may say, okay, Amazon was up 15%. They missed analyst estimates. Well, Intel was down 15%. They beat analyst estimates. Its network and edge segment was the only one to see revenue growth in the quarter, up 15% to $2.27 billion. Data center and AI was down 27% to $4.21 billion. While its client computing group, and this includes PC chips, fell 17% to $8.12 billion. Now, that's a lot of, we, we threw a lot of percents, lots of billion dollars. It feels like pretend money when we're talking about $127.10 billion. But Nate, anything standing out to you in, in these uh, in these three earnings report or just kind of this this kind of crazy week in tech earnings? Yeah, I mean, overall, I mean, this is, this is something that at, at Bloomberg, my head is in 24 hours a day, pretty much. And if you want to talk about billions, you can even talk about trillions, because if you look at some of the market value of these companies, in fact, if you add up the big, you know, some of the big tech companies, they've lost about half a trillion dollars in market value recently, because investors have basically said, this is terrible. All of these companies are suffering from the same fundamental problems. That is to say, things like inflation and currency, as opposed to anything fundamentally wrong with their products. And they're all, um, and they're all doing very, very badly. So you have seen investors fleeing. Um, and the other the other side of this that is particularly interesting is if you if you look at what some of the analysts are saying about these companies, is that it is a it's a fundamental problem with what's going on in the business. We're talking about recessions, we're talking about inflation, we're talking about currency problems. Um, that's not set to immediately get better at all. And a lot of these companies stock that their shares are still extremely expensive. You know, they have been decimated this year, not literally decimated, but they've been they've been hit very, very hard over the course of this year because people, are, you know, investors are saying, well, look, this isn't going to get better in the short term. These companies are extremely highly valued and they are extremely risky. And now the price has come down a lot because investors have pulled their shares uh, and, and so the price has gone down. But people, analysts specifically, are still saying they're very, very expensive and that means they're very risky because there's no immediate sign of this getting better. So the TLDR version of all that is that it's been really bad and no one's expecting it to get better anytime soon, which means it's a trend we can probably see continuing. Uh, certainly investors are expecting it to continue um, and we're not really seeing any indicators that's about to change. So... So one of the things that uh, was that seemed kind of interesting was that the Apple Mac revenue 
actually increased. Now, is that because um, Apple has done something significant or, or, or counter, counter, uh, counter fluctuation to what's going on in the market broadly? Like, is there something about the Mac that has people wanting to buy those instead of buying new PCs? Well, I will say it is it is interesting to see that, especially given the overall PC market has basically been like we're, everything's down. You know, everything from memory chips we just talked about uh, on Daily Tech headlines yesterday. Seagate is cutting like three thousand jobs. Like the overall PC market, we're seeing this with Microsoft uh, and uh, Intel. You know, th- there's a, there's a, just a dearth in uh, PC demand, and really weird to see that for Mac now. Obviously, they're still in uh, you know the first phase of their Apple Silicon transition, which I think has churned. Uh, a lot of users, and they've released some of their first uh, uh, professional, uh, uh, you know, PCs in the last two quarters, right, with the Mac Studio being like their first kind of, you know, really high-powered workstation style. I know it's not the Mac Pro, but, you know, it's a fairly high-margin uh, uh, device for them, but it does uh, it does definitely seem notable, even with all that, to not just that it stayed flat, but that it's it basically was the reason they beat expectations. I mean, they still had record revenue, but... Uh, one of the reasons they beat expectations because the Mac sales were were so strong. I, I'm but wondering also, if it, look at look at the, look at the chips. It's the M1, the M2. That is a big driver of why those Macs have been so popular. Mm-hmm. Without and, question. And is it possible that those sales are actually people not buying those instead of buying a PC? So, in fact, adding to the the depression uh, kind of depressed sales on the Intel side for for client uh, hardware. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I, 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 I don't have much to. to add no, to I just it's it's, it's it's because it's 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 a very interesting like you know if people are jumping ship and saying I'm going with a Mac because of the M1 because of the M2, um, and they're just like well next time I upgrade I'm not upgrading my Intel powered laptop to another Intel powered laptop I'm going to go M1 I'm going to go M2, I mean it's it's I have definitely put that through my head a few times uh, about, you know, ditching my PCs, getting a Mac. And the one thing I'll say real quick, and it, this may not be the, the thing that's top of mind for a lot of consumers, but Amazon's cloud revenue, it's slowing down. It's still like the reason that Amazon is a profitable company is AWS. So that cannot be understated. But Google Cloud and Azure are growing faster. Now they're much smaller. Google Cloud's like a third of what AWS generates and very key, they're not profitable at all yet. Um, so it is it is interesting to watch this cloud race as it develops, as Amazon continues to be the 800-pound gorilla in the room, the almost the legacy player, the, the dominant player in that market, and how it is going to fend off, uh, you know, continued growth uh, as, it, as, as its business perhaps settles into a, a more routine growth uh, going forward. All right. Well, uh, we're just about done with that. So, uh, Roger, what's in the mailbag? Well, we got an email from Sam who wanted to comment on the Twitter content moderation story we had yesterday with Justin Robert Young. And uh, he wanted to say, my personal experience on Twitter is quite good, but I think that it can be attributed to two things. One, the list of people I follow is quite well curated. And two, I am not in any way, quote unquote, famous and I don't post on Twitter. So while one can certainly be covered under Elon's idea of people being able to configure their Twitter experience, I think two is the hard part. You can do a lot of harassing of people on Twitter without it being illegal, and I don't immediately see how you can configure yourself out of this issue without just blocking interaction with anyone you don't follow by default. But I'll not discount 
Elon's attempt yet. I don't have a very high opinion of him, mostly because he posts too much stuff. I don't really consider having a Tesla because of this, for example, because I don't like the way he keeps just shouting that stuff is almost there. And yes, I acquired an electric car last year, so I was actually in the market. But I'm not turning a, running away from Twitter. If he doesn't do anything that makes my experience significantly worse, I'll stick around. Yeah, Nate, I mean, uh, how was your uh, Twitter uh, timeline experience being, uh, you know, a, a journalist, certainly? Uh, um, do, you, do you think it, it comes down to just curate the list well? Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't really use Twitter anymore. I deleted all my tweets. I still keep the account because I've got thousands of followers and I just can't bring myself to delete it. Um, but I deleted all the actual tweets. If you look at my feed, there's nothing there's nothing there. Uh, so I am genuinely quite curious if if something changes here fundamentally that brings me back. So I don't really know what Twitter is anymore. Yes, it's useful as a journalist, but LinkedIn's far more useful to me as a journalist um, than than Twitter. And uh, if Elon changes it and makes it more appealing to me, then I'll go back whether or not it's Elon in charge. I won't be following him, but I'll <laughs> I'll post if it's useful. Uh, it's it's definitely very similar to me where I just kind of left Twitter on cruise control. And, you know, depending on, on the decisions and, and the direction he takes the company, I might revisit that decision, use it more. But at this time, it's just sort of out in left field for me. Uh, yeah, I am. I am on team. Uh, curate all the feeds. I'm a recondo uh, everything and and asked if it gave me joy and whittled down my list uh, a couple of years ago. Definitely better for it. But I admit, you know, if, if you're posting a lot or or if you have a certain level of notoriety, I know that gets uh, exponentially harder. Uh, well, before we get out of here, we have to thank uh, Len Peralta, who's been drawing uh, one of the stories of today. Now, now, Len, you were doing a lesser known story from today, right? I was doing a lesser known story. Yes, you mm-hmm. know, I always this. Uh, uh, I always introduce myself as drawing the top tech stories of the week or, of you know, so I feel this is probably the biggest one, right? I mean, hmm. uh, not Elon buying um, Twitter, but him walking into Twitter headquarters with a sink. So oh. uh, this uh, this is an image of Elon walking in with a Twitter bird inside of a sink, and uh, he has some colorful words to say. Uh, this does not in any way indicate how I feel about Elon or hopefully, you know, it's just I'm not making a statement. But uh, if you're not going to check it out, go check it out. It's at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash lend. You can uh, if you're if you're a backer there, you can immediately download that cool image, which is called Musk Sync In. And uh, the other thing is uh, you can get it just normally at my online store, uh, lenperaltastore.com. And celebrate my birthday this weekend by purchasing something, maybe even this print. Who knows? <laughs> well, happy, happy birthday to you, Len. And also happy to have Nate Langson on the show. Nate, uh, thank you so much for, for lending uh, uh, your expertise, especially on the earnings stuff. That was really great stuff. Uh, where can people find text message and all your other great stuff? Yeah, I mean, um, my stuff uh, professionally is at, is at Bloomberg.com. I'm a tech editor over there. Um, my podcast, UKTechShow.com. That is the place to go. Um, the great feedback I get from, uh, particularly from overseas listeners, because we're quite UK focused, um, is that it gives you guys context because we tend not to talk about the stuff you've already heard of, um, and we talk about stuff that is quite local to to hear. So I'd love you guys to check it out, UKTechShow.com. And thanks for having me, and happy birthday, Len. <laughs> Well, thank you so much again, Nate, and a special thanks to John Linehan, who is one of our top lifetime supporters of DTNS. 
John, thank you so much for your years of Yay, support. Yay, John. Thank you so much. All right. And remember, patrons, stick around for our extended show, Good Day Internet. That is coming right up. You can, of course, catch the show live Monday through Friday, 4 p.m. Eastern, 2000 UTC. You can find out more at dailytechnewsshow.com slash live. We'll be back Monday talking about the threat the threat that climate change poses for supercomputers with Dr. Nikki Ackerman's Make Sure You Stay Tuned and Tune In for that. All right, this week's episode of Daily Tech News Show were created by the following people. Host, producer, writer, Tom Merritt. Host, producer, writer, Sarah Lane. Executive producer and booker, Roger Chang. Producer, writer, and host, Rich Strappolino. Hi. Video producer, Twitch producer, Joe Koontz. Technical producer, Anthony Lamos. Spanish language host, writer, and producer, Don Campos. News host, writer, producer, Jen Cutter. Science correspondent, Dr. Nikki Ackerman. Social media producer and moderator, Zoe Detterding. Our mods, this, uh, as always, our Beatmaster, W. Scottis One, BioCow, Captain Kipper, Steve Guadarrama, Paul Reese, Matthew J. Stevens, a.k.a. Gadget Virtuoso, and J.D. Galloway. Mod and video hosting by Dan Christensen. Video feed by Sean Way. Music and art provided by Martin Bell, Dan Luders, Mustafa A., Acast, and Len Peralta. Live art performed by Len Peralta. Acast ad supported by Tatiana Matias. Patreon support by Dylan Harari. Contributors for this week's show include Nika Montford, Shannon Morse, Scott Johnson, Justin Robert Young, and Chris Christensen. Guests on this week's show include Nate Langson. This show is part of the Frog Pants Network. Get more at frogpants.com. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.